Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. There's all sorts of ways here at the university that we are exploring the Gadigal story, the Gadigal connection of place. Um, When you look at these two maps, I wanted to start tonight's proceedings with the one on your left is a map of archaeological sites in the Sydney region. The one on your right is a map of um, skirmishes, warfare, early days of the colony up until the early 1800s. I'm sorry, until the early 1800s. And when you put these two layers over the top of each other, you start to see sort of patterns of places of heavy occupation where these skirmishes and the archaeological record show us that there is a history of occupation there, but they don't really tell us what that occupation means or what it was or how it worked. Um, And there's almost two different filters of the way we see the past. Through repatriation, we're actually starting some incredible new conversations about how we actually walk forward into the future, how we um, collaborate and work together with and prioritise Aboriginal people's perspectives into the way that we work with museum collections in particular. So this is actually has huge implications for us at the moment. Uh, at the moment, we are, if you might have seen the construction works for the Chow Chuck Wing Museum, which is due to open in 2020. And when you look at the different layers of history from the, you know, the colonial era you know, to our projected new museum, um, up until the, you know, the virtual way that we represent the landscape, <coughs> There's all sorts of ways that we have attempted to sort of break down this barrier between, you know, the colonial past and the 21st century. So simple things like playing with the University of Sydney's Latin motto, for example, Sidera mens idem mutato, the stars change, the mind remains the same. We can quite easily translate this into Darug. You know, there are amazing ways where we don't have to physically represent the past, that we can actually tell the past, um, reinsert a Gadigal sense of place into the way that we work here on land and on country. And, you know, just the fascinating ways that the, we're actually leaping from the 19th century into the 21st century, particularly in the Maclay, which has the biggest legacy of items which need to be repatriated. You know, and how do you actually represent something like repatriation in a new museum? There's amazing conversations that we need to have <coughs> as we make this leap um, with our museum collections. These are just projected images, um, as well as some earlier pictures from the Maclay. So since 1994, the University of Sydney has had a very proactive repatriation project. We're actually the only independent repatriation project in the country. All the other repatriation projects come under the federal umbrella, whereas the University of Sydney in 1994 decided it wanted to own the process of repatriation and be able to say at the end of it that we initiated this off our own bat, which is an incredibly important and powerful message. We've found uh, numerous cases where working with repatriation has actually transformed our relationships with communities and become more of a two-way street. And don't forget, the international implications of this are constantly arising in the news. So even in the last couple of weeks, the Chilean government has put in a request um, 
for the, for the fellow stranger from the British Museum. You know, they're complex issues. Does putting it on display in Britain raise awareness, which funds conservation in Easter Island? You know, if we return everything, does that whitewash the story of the Easter Island people from the history of museums? It's not a simple request and return sort of process. There's huge conversations and very complex histories involved in all these discussions. And the one thing I think that Australian museums can say is that at least over the last 25 years, out of all museums in the world, we Australian museums can really put themselves up as being world leaders in um, valuing Aboriginal perspectives on collections management, but also acting on those. And repatriation is the most visible form of acknowledging Aboriginal perspectives and philosophies in, the, in, the, in collections management. You know, and as we sort of move through these different sort of periods, we're starting to see these incredibly new ways of um, experiencing Sydney, of the deeper layers of um, archaeological knowledges. These are fish hooks from which were made for thousands of years in the Sydney region, um, turned into giant public artworks for the City of Sydney's Eora Journey program. So slowly by slowly, I think we're actually changing the way that we actually see the landscape around us. And I think repatriation has informed a lot of the processes of how that has worked. So tonight, I think I will um, jump into our first speaker. We'll have a pretty uh, casual format where I'll invite each of the three speakers up to present about themselves and their work for a little bit. And then after that, we'll all join together on the table down here and have a 20-minute or so question and answer session, as I'm sure hopefully some people have a lot of questions about the work that our very diverse presenters tonight work with. <coughs> so I'd like to throw now to Barina South. Barina is a descendant of the Barkindji peoples from northern western New South Wales. She is the senior team leader of regional heritage operations in the southern region of New South Wales. OEH Heritage Division. Brina has worked previously at the Australian Museum for several years, and in 2003 was co-author of Depicting Cross-Cultural Interactions, Figurative Designs in Wood, Earth and Stone from Southeastern Australia. I would like to invite Brina to the stage to tell us a bit more about her work with the Office of Environment and Heritage, and in particular, the logistics of community engagement. Um, firstly, um, before I start, I'd like to note that various Aboriginal communities across Australia use different terminology when referring to the old people, and throughout this presentation I'll be using the term ancestral remains. My experience in the delivery of repatriation is a result of working within a museum context as the collection manager at the Australian Museum, and more recently as senior team leader of, for the Office of Environment and Heritage. The combination of both roles has given me a unique perspective on the process. In my current role, I've had the opportunity to work with a variety of different Aboriginal communities to return back, ancestral remains back to country, which has involved very complex private discussions and negotiations. I left the museum industry in 2008 and began working for the Office of Environment and Heritage, initially in the southwest region of New South Wales, based in Griffith, and for the past eight years, I've worked across the southeast region of New South Wales, based in Queanbeyan. The southeast region I'm responsible for stretches from Oberon down to Eden, across to Albury, up through Wagga Wagga, tomorrow, and then back to Burrawa. It takes in the far south coast, snowy mountains, and the Monaro Plains. Very diverse country, very diverse communities. And this, of course, equates to very different approaches to how repatriation is undertaken. 
As part of my talk tonight, I will touch on the most recent event, repatriation event, which marked the beginning of the return of the Willandralax repatriation of 105 individuals, including Mungo Man back to country. My involvement with this repatriation is minor compared to those individuals who, individuals who fought very hard and a long, long battle to have those ancestral remains returned to country, a struggle that took over 40 years. In conclusion, I will be discussing the need to acknowledge cultural safety for Aboriginal staff involved with sensitive projects like repatriation. All our Aboriginal cultural heritage projects are guided by the fact that the Office of Environment and Heritage is responsible for the proper care and preservation of Aboriginal objects, including ancestral remains in New South Wales. Aboriginal objects in the landscape, as well as those collected since April 1970, are the property of the Crown, therefore subject to the provisions of the National Parks and Wildlife Act. Objects collected prior to April 1970 that were not located in National Park estates are not the property of the Crown and therefore not subject to this Act. Under Section 85 of the National Parks and Wildlife Act, the Chief Executive of the New South Wales Office of Environment and Heritage may return objects that are, the, that are the property of the Crown, back to community. By returning Aboriginal objects to an Aboriginal owner entitled to and willing to accept possession, custody or control of the Aboriginal objects in accordance with Aboriginal tradition. Our repatriation policy, which is currently being reviewed, guides us how we conduct repatriation projects. And some of the objectives of the policy include enable OEH staff and other stakeholders, such as repositories and other government agencies, to support repatriation of Aboriginal cultural material, to enable Aboriginal communities to drive repatriation initiatives, and to ensure the location of Aboriginal cultural material is recorded in accordance with the New South Wales statutory requirements to ensure their ongoing protection. In the past, the policy favoured the removal of cultural material, including ancestral remains, from its original context to guarantee its protection. As a result of almost 30 years of this practice, large collections of cultural material are held under the National Parks and Wildlife Act. Over the years, the policies have changed. The practice of collecting cultural material is less prevalent, and these collections are now starting to be returned in a strategic manner. It's fair to say repatriation is a foreign concept, where an individual is taken from their resting place, generally moved large distances away, held in institutions or coroner's departments, and then returned, in some cases not back to their original location. There are three different types of repatriation the Office of Environment Heritage is involved with. These include the return of cultural material, repatriation of ancestral remains uncovered in the landscape, and the repatriation of ancestral remains from collections. The return of cultural material back to community usually involves archaeological objects like stone tools seen in this picture here that have been accepted in the past from the public. The act of removing cultural material is an offence under the National Parks and Wildlife Act and can incur fines. OEH is not a collecting institution, but we can provide advice on how to return material back to where they were once collected from, if sufficient information is available. Again, I'd like to stress that it's against the National Parks and Wildlife Act to remove any objects from the landscape. 
The second type of repatriation the Office of Environment and Heritage is involved in is the when ancestral remains are uncovered in the environment, usually from weather events. For any remains uncovered, it is by law a requirement to contact the police and that should be the first steps, steps taken because the site is regarded as a, a crime scene until otherwise determined. The police assess the site and in most cases the remains are collected and sent to the coroner's office in Glebe to determine the origin and age of the remains. If it is determined that the material found is of Aboriginal origin and over 100 years old, OEH is contacted to negotiate the return for reburial. This usually occurs back to the original location. If this is not possible, another location is determined. This can be a very lengthy process, but once OEH and the community are notified, the act of repatriation is undertaken as soon as possible. The decision on how this should be conducted is determined by the community. In some cases, if the community is uncomfortable with undertaking, undertaking the reburial, OEH can assist. The site is recorded and if needed, protective measures put in place such as fencing can be erected to avoid any further disturbance. The third type of repatriation involves the return of ancestral remains back to country from collecting institutions. Once OEH receives confirmation that there are ancestral remains housed in the museum's collection, OEH informs the community to begin discussions on how best to proceed. This will generally involve giving the Aboriginal community all the information available on the ancestral remains, for example, where the, item, where the remains were collected from, gender, etc. This information assists with guiding how the repatriation might be conducted. At the same time, the institutions need to be notified about the community timeframes for repatriation because they need to prepare for the ancestral remains for collection. Location for the final resting place needs to be determined by the community. Representatives from the community need to be identified for collecting the remains from the institutions. Office of Environment and Heritage makes the arrangements, the travel arrangements, and once the community are brought to the, to the location of where the remains are located, there needs to be discussion around how the ancestral remains will be received by the community. Most often, a smoking ceremony is involved, and this may involve turning off smoke alarms, etc. Back on country, the site for reburial needs to be prepared and heavy machinery may be needed. There are internal processes including job safety assessments to ensure the location is safe. And we must also keep in mind other factors like the weather. The community need to consider if they'd like the media or other individual um, groups, other individuals and groups involved. And most often there's a post repatriation event or gathering. Throughout all this, it's important to keep in mind the events and issues affecting the community such as sorry business which can affect timeframes for repatriation. This is the general step-by-step -step process, and in some cases, repatriation can be straightforward, but most often than not, you can be faced with a variety of logistical nightmares, issues, delays, a lot of media interest, which takes me, which takes me now to the Willandra Lakes repatriation. The recent return of the Willandra Lakes repatriation of 105 individuals, including Mungo Man back to country, is an example of a repatriation that involved 40 years plus of complex discussions and negotiations 
and to explore this in detail deserves an hour-long seminar on its own. My role in the repatriation was arranging the event for the ancestral remains leaving Canberra to start their long journey back to country, which involved a large team of people. The repatriation involved the three traditional custodians of the Willandra Lakes Herald Heritage Area, the Barkindji, the Mari Mari and the Nyampa. Arranging the event in Canberra was a very different experience than any other repatriation due to the interest and number of media involved. Plus the event was, being, was held at the National Museum of Australia off-site secure storage area and the potential of Commonwealth and state dignitaries and politicians attending was quite, quite high and the arrival of the large contingent of representatives of the Aboriginal community that were arriving. The priority was to ensure the community were looked after and that their way of reclaiming the ancestors was conducted in a culturally appropriate way. This part of the event was conducted behind closed doors away from media. After it was finished, the ancestral remains were moved outside. You can see in this photo here the amount of media uh, that were there on the day. We did um, inform the media to respect the repatriation and treat it as though it was a funeral. Um, they did to some degree, um, but as the ancestral remains were um, being put into the hearse, they, they started scurrying around and trying to get the shots that they needed. We can see here in this slide uh, the hearse that the community wanted the, to return the ancestral remains back in. The hearse is part of the Museum of Victoria's collections and was used by a lot of the Victorian Aboriginal communities down that way um, for a lot of their community funerals. As you can see, it's quite an old valiant and it did break down a number of times on its way <laughs> out to Lake Mungo. So that's another logistic we kind of didn't plan for. But, but this gentleman here on the right, he was the mechanic that um, ended up travelling with the, the valiant. So that was good. We had him on site. The day before the repatriation event at Lake Mungo, it rained, and that had the potential to close the roads. So we waited urgently by the phones to hear if, in fact, the roads were going to be closed or not. <coughs> if the roads were going to be closed, that would mean we'd have to relocate everything back in town. But luckily, um, the roads remained open when we were allowed to go out on site. On the day the hearse arrived, the ancestral remains were removed. And at that point, I don't know if anyone in the room was at the event, but if you were, you would have noticed the wind pick up. When the wind picked up, picked up it circled, and then we all knew that it was going to be okay. At the end of the official event, me and some of the other people that were there on the day, we looked out across the lake, and there were little whirly winds picking up. And as one picked up and died down, another one picked up, and you could see them right across the landscape. It was quite fantastic. And for a moment I glimpsed what it may have been like all those years ago. It would have been paradise for those old people. At this point I'd like to touch on the OEH, um, Office of Environment and Heritage Aboriginal Cultural Safety Frameworks, currently in development. Undertaking, undertaking repatriation can have an impact on you. Each and every repatriation has a, had a profound impact on me. But being Barkindji, Having that connection, I found the Rolandra Lake repatriation very emotional. In the past, I've also found it difficult when working with ancestral remains involving children. 
I've also had this reaction when I was involved in the repatriation of ancestral remains back to WA and the responsibility of returning people back to another state, another part of the country. Many Aboriginal employees have similar reactions when undertaking repatriations and other sensitive Aboriginal cultural heritage projects. This is an aspect of, repatriation, of the repatriation process on government workers which is rarely discussed. OEH, whose pivotal role is protecting cultural heritage and the environment, is also a major employer of Aboriginal staff in New South Wales and understands the need for Aboriginal cultural safety and having a safe space to address such issues as cultural consequences, illness and feelings of unease, physical, emotional, mental and spiritual impacts on staff working with sensitive projects. In conclusion, I'd like to sum up that repatriations are as diverse and complex as the community undertaking them. They may involve cultural material, ancestral remains uncovered in the landscape or from museum collections. For any community about to undertake a repatriation, remember, it can be a difficult process with the various discussions and negotiations, but remember your decisions, your way of doing business. During the Willandra Lakes repatriation, it was stated that the old people of Mungo surfaced for a reason, to teach us something. I wonder if Australia has learnt that lesson. I can't help but think which ancestors will resurface in the future and which lessons they may have for us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Barina, for that incredible um, insight. Um, one of the reasons we wanted to put this program together was, you know, we always sort of see the news stories as the end result, but the actual logistics that go into making this happen, um, you know, even deaccessioning the Valiant from Melbourne Museum is a classic example of the, um, the interconnectedness across all museums, and it's actually going that way. There's quite a few objects that sometimes are held in our museum and others that um, are held in safekeeping for communities when they borrow them, when they need them for particular events and things like that. <coughs> So museums have an incredibly important role to play in repatriation in the future, I think, too. And um, just thanks so much. That was an awesome overview. Our next speaker tonight is Mr. Sean Angeles. Sean is a Penanke man from Yampe country on the lands of the Aranda people of Central Australia. Sean works as an Indigenous repatriation researcher at the Strello Museum, which is a part of the Museum of Central Australia. Sean's work involves reconstructing the assemblages of thousands of Central Australian objects, photographs, research reports, all sorts of data and information and objects, and in a sense virtually reconstructing the whereabouts of these thousands of fragments of Aranda and Luritja history as they have been distributed across museums around the world. Please welcome Sean to talk. Yeah, what are everybody? Younger Nama Shon Pananga, Yang Abmeryam Brinya, Quajagan Abmer Yanikur, Yang Kangamandurgon Willama, Mergon Pajaka, Gajik. I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this country and, uh, yeah, recognize um, them as being. Uh, very powerful shield people for the people in the middle of Australia. Um, they shielded the forces of colonisation for about a hundred years um, for us in Aranda country, so thank you. Um, I've got to get to this. Uh, 
Hey. I work at the um, Strella Research Center in Mbandwa, Alice Springs, um, as the Atukun Collection Researcher. Atukun means um, men, belonging to men, in um, Aranda language. Um, yeah, and I work with a collection, uh, a really unique collection. Um, it's a pretty controversial collection, if anybody knows the history around um, Strello um, and, yeah, and um, Aranda people. Um, but it's really, really unique. These films are really powerful films. Um, yeah, and they're subject to repatriation. He worked with... Uh, people in Central Australia from about 1932 to the mid-1970s. This big blue one in the middle, Aranda, big tribe, um, and all the sort of surrounding language groups, uh, Anmajara, Luricha, Alyaura, um, Andagarinya, Yangunjara, Pitnjara, Wangunguru. So, um, yeah, he did a, he did a lot of... Uh, pretty profound work with um, uh, my people over about four decades. So the collection comprises more than 1,200 sacred men's objects, Joranga, um, about 250 secular objects, boomerangs, shields, kulamans, torara, all these kind of things. 26 hours of 16 millimeter movie film of over 800 ceremonial acts, a really important resource to us. 150 hours of sound recordings of stories and songs, more than 10,000 still photographs, about 5,000 of those are ceremonial. 44 of his field diaries um, that contain all of his, you know, the information, his travels, his, uh, the people who he worked with, maps, um, translations of songs, and so forth. 150 detailed genealogies, which are um, really important, um, particularly with the stolen generation members. Um, we have a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of our old people who were stolen come in and access the family trees. Um, and there's been some uh, really beautiful stories of us connecting people up so they're a really important resource. And then, uh, yeah, all the correspondence of Strello and his father, Carl, um, who was a missionary out in Dari community, Hermansburg. Language dictionary material uh, and all of T.J. Strello's field equipment. Oh, just some of our um, repatriation projects, collection management, digitization, indigenous governance, we'll, we'll get to them. All right, so it's a really holistic collection. Um, he wasn't, uh, yeah, like when he was working with my old people, um, if, if they had given him uh, some objects, handed over some objects to him, he, he tried to uh, um, record the songs associated with those objects, um, if the ceremonies were still being enacted, he tried to record them um, and uh, recorded family trees, you know, the traditional owners of these objects. So, 
Yeah, look, um, in the collection we've got the, the film, the ceremony of film, the songs, family trees, the artifacts, photographs, the field diaries, so all, the other, all the documentation, but this is the main one, Apmara. Every one of these assets relate to a sp um, specific sacred site in the country. Um, so everything is embedded in, into the landscape, into the, into the country itself. Um, so a lot of my research is looking at all these assets and then linking them back to where they actually originate from in the, in the cultural landscape. Digitisation. We digitise every day. Um, you know, there's, there's hundreds, of, hundreds of these tapes. Um, the originals are kept at the uh, National Film and Sand Archive. Um, we have a um, really close relationship with them. Um, but we've got uh, yeah, copies of all the songs and uh, digitised copies of the film and, and, and uh, other assets. You know, we like to, well, I'll get to that in a minute, how we're working with the NFSA. Um, you know, technology is always changing so and improving. Well... Um, um, so yeah, we like to, you know, be up with, uh, yeah, best, best, um, you know, best standards of uh, digitisation. But I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Indigenous governance, probably the most important thing with the Strela collection. Um, it's been, it's been established for, I think, 27 years. I think 1991 it was, it was um, established. Um, and look, for the first 15 years, these very important men were effectively left out of the, out of the collection. Um, so we're really trying to turn that around and uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of, of the material um, as, as the people who, who should be engaging with it and interacting with it on a daily basis. Uh, these two beautiful old men, John Kavanagh, Eastern Arundel men, Alan Yellowshirt Drover. Um, we're doing some really, really good work with these two men um, on the Eastern Arundel material. Um, and both their fathers actually worked with Strello. John's in 1935, or his father's older brother, which is his big father, in 1935, and um, Alan's in 1958. And um, it's really, it's, yeah, it's really special. I mean, um, you know, Alan didn't know that um, his father actually worked with Strello, and um, We've got him on film um, conducting a ceremony in 1958 and showing that to Alan for the first time was just a really great moment and I'll never forget it. Um, he was able to watch his father again and see his father move and um, yeah, really, really special. I'll stay on this Indigenous governance for a little bit. So we're trying to Look at everything with Arunda eyes. We're, we're not wanting to work in the traditional sort of museum ways where, you know, um, yeah, because it, look, it just doesn't work for the Strello collection. It just 
does not work. We need to um, work as Arunda men would. Um, and it's a cultural collection, so we need to bring Arunda ways into it. And, uh, you know, for the literature, they need to bring their ways into working with it. It's totally different. Um, and, you know, like, these men, they're the professors. When they walk through those doors, um, they're up here. You can get, uh, and no disrespect intended to anybody, you can get professor anthropologists, you can get professors in whatever field. When they walk into the Strello Research Centre and they work with this material, they become young boys again. These men, they hit the ground running. They understand exactly what they're looking at because they're from it. It belongs to them. Um, so we, we're very proud of that, actually, um, Arunda people. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just the way things are. Um, Indigenous governance, yeah, we're bringing our ways into, into working with the collection. So um, we took this beautiful man down into the secret store where all the objects are held. Um, and he uh, felt the presence of spirits down there. So we couldn't go to anybody else to deal with this problem. He's an angra, he's a healer, so he knows how to work with these presents. And um, we ended up smoking the whole museum, cleansing it our way, out and away. Um, first time it's ever been done. And um, I'd sort of recommend and suggest any museum that hold indigenous artifacts to, to, uh, to do that. Because it just... Um, creates a, a more safer environment and it cleanses, you know, like, uh, yeah, these objects are powerful objects. We know this and, um, you know, we, we treat them with, with the respect that they, that they demand. Um, yeah, so the engagement of Indigenous cultural authorities is a no-brainer. Um, it's imperative to the health of the collection. We need these old men interacting with it every day. We need them. And you know, they deserve it, but the other thing is is that the objects deserve it. There's this, there's this link between human and object and it's a reciprocal relationship. We both depend on one another. Um, yeah, so that's John Cavanagh Yellow shirt, Alan Drover. They're famous people in the Arundel world, these two. We love them. Community engagement. This is important. Here we see um, senior Western Arundel man, Mark Inkamala. You might know where Glen Helen Gorge is, big, beautiful country in Central Australia. Yapalpa, he's a traditional owner for there. This is part of an ARC project with um, University of Western Sydney. Um, and here, he's uh, explaining how these, all these three young men here, how they're all related through this family tree. 
explaining their skin names, explaining where their ancestors come from. And um, this is really important and, and this is also um, a way to keep the collection healthy is by, by bringing in and bringing these young people in and um, utilising it as a, as a teaching tool and um, combining the, the knowledge that is, is here inside, say, Mark's head and his heart and using all this documentation and combining it to then give giving these young people a really profound experience when they come into the centre. Um, yeah, and uh, the way that uh, you know, the community is engaging with the collections, a lot of different ways. Um, men usually bring their young fellows in after they've been initiated, um, bring them in and um, get them interacting with their, their churunga, their objects and um, get them for the first time listening to their, to their great-grandfathers singing their songs from their country. Um, sometimes, if they're lucky, they get to um, view some of the um, ceremonial content. That's usually sort of after a couple of years, you know? It's uh, powerful stuff. Community. Sometimes elders use the collection to learn stuff themselves. I mean, you know, we all know that, um, yeah, uh, you know, the last hundred years has been uh, pretty horrific for many Aboriginal people. And um, there's no difference in Central Australia. Um, we might say that we're this and that, but to be honest, um, there's been a lot of knowledge that's been lost. So, uh, look, when these men can come in and uh, read about their fathers or their grandfathers working with Strello and uh, listen to songs and watch film, ceremonial film um, that, you know, they haven't uh, ever seen before, it's um, a really moving experience for them too. So elders are learning from it as well. Not all. There's, there's some like Alan Driver who's just, Absolutely amazing. Um, spent a lot of time with his fathers and his uncles and his grandfathers. And uh, uh, the other thing too, community engagement. Yeah, I feel really happy about this because we're bringing in these young men that are um, at school, 16, 17, 18, and we're bringing them in, and we're and we're um, we're. We're doing tours of the collection, the parts that we can show them. If they're um, initiated young men, well, we can go a little bit deeper. Um, but if they aren't, we can, we, there's still stuff we can work with. And um, it's important because when you look at the importance of, uh, or when you sort of sit back and look at Aboriginal organisations and, and how important they are to Aboriginal people and our future, well, museums are up there. They're up there, like with the land councils and, you know, some other type of organisations because they hold our ancestors, they hold our ancestral knowledge. So you can't get any more important than, than that, I think, anyway. So, um, look, we're looking at... Uh, 
what do you call it, work experience opportunities for some young men, you know, and how to work with museum collections, um, how to, you know, archive and how to photograph and, and do, uh, you know, Aranda-style research. And um, so, look, we haven't got anything like that up at the moment, but it's definitely on our radar. And um, if anybody can help, feel free, because it's really important, eh, we get these young men coming in and learning about uh, museum collections and how they work and how we can, I guess, uh, uh, decolonise them. National Film and Sound Archive, really, really important um, stakeholder. Um, yeah, so they hold all the original AV material that Strello recorded. Um, the film, while recording LP discs, uh, and we're actually talking with them at the moment, and thank you, sisters, for coming, um, about re-digitising the collection, so, so keeping up with the, with the highest quality standards. Um, and we're looking at putting it on the UNESCO Memory of the World. We're a little bit of, we've got a little bit of work to do, but hopefully we'll get there, you know. Um, I think it uh, absolutely deserves it. Um, and I don't know about these figures and all that, but something like that. It's like big, big, big money, you know. Um, but, we, but we thank yous because, you know, um, we've sort of been talking and, you know, it, they've prioritised it up with their, you know, top priority list. So, um, look, when we tell our old people about that, they're just really thankful. And, um, yeah, so hopefully we can make it happen. But really important for us. And NFSA, field work, this is where the magic happens. This is where we breathe life into the collection. This is where we take copies of the songs and we take copies of the maps and we take copies of the ceremonial film and we take copies of the family trees. We take them out and they get dirty, they get red dirt over them. Copies, copies, not originals. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and we're, we're using the collection to, to refine sites, important sites in, in land. Um, and this particular um, case is just a really positive story. Um, this is a small family group of Aranda men. Um, and, yeah, they... We began consultations with them through the research. We, we um, identified uh, a set of um, objects, songs, that their great-grandfather had left. Um, he'd worked with Strello in 1935. And, uh, yeah, I mean, basically they walked through the doors a little bit unsure when we presented to them the material that their great-grandfather had left, they walked out the door different men and we're currently working with them to repatriate uh, 27 objects, artefacts, um, an hour long of uh, ceremonial singing which um, their grandfather, great-grandfather had um, left for them. And so they walked out the door culturally rich men and um, 
Here they're pointing at a, a site where their great-grandfather was from. He was the uh, incarnate of the spirit that lives in that hill, Warita. First time they had visited that site. And over here is Alan Drover, who we utilised as a um, cultural elder and uh, knowledge man to... He walked this country as a child, naked, young fella, with his family. So, um, yeah, really, really good experience. But this is where the magic happens. And, um, yeah, we, we want to, you know, keep doing the field work. And, um, yeah, that's where you realise the true potential of the, of the collection is, is when we take it out bush. And the other thing too is um, we're creating, when we do this, we've got the cameras, we've got the sound recorders and we're creating like a, uh, a companion collection to the, to the Strello collection. It represents a continuum um, of knowledge. And so in 50 years time, the work that we're doing can, um, you know, maybe be similar to Strello's collection. Collaboration. Uh, we work pretty closely with other museums. Um, we estimate through our research that there's five to 6,000 artefacts that belong to Central Australia that aren't in Central Australia. So that's too many. Our lands got plundered. They got looted. But also, old men were actively engaging with, you know, um, non-Aboriginal men and, uh, yeah, selling objects, trading objects. So it's not so black and white. There's, there's all these forces that were around, um, you know, over the last 100 years that contributed to these many thousands of objects outside of um, Aranda country. This is uh, 2017 in here, uh, objects that come returned, were returned from Museum Victoria. Smoke. We all use smoke, all of us, all over the world. All right, master visionaries. Um, this is another project. Um, if you read anything about the Strello collection, you won't read anything about the men who gave Strello the information, the source of the information. So what we're doing is we're doing the research, um, compiling information around these very, very special visionary men. This is Mickey Gura in 1933. He put the zap on Strello in 1932 when he returned to do some linguistic research in Central Australia. Old man, he said, uh, hey, young fella, we know who you are. You was born at Hermansburg community. You're one of us. You need to come and work with us because our, our world is changing. It's changing, it's changing rapidly. So we're gonna use you as a bit of a conduit to record our precious knowledge before maybe it's gone forever. So this is Mickey Kura. Mickey Bandicoot. Yeah. He's the, he was a Bandicoot man, ceremony man. Geria, Strello, and Warita. 
is that, you know that fieldwork photograph? That's their great-grandfather, 1935. Yeah, um, they, uh, they were out at uh, Anurinjang, um east of Alice Springs, a place called Anurinjang, and um, they put on a three-month ceremony camp for Australia to record. Kolbrenya. Kolbrenya literally means from Kolba. Kolba is a sacred site in East Naranda country in the Hale River region. Um, this is in 1935. Uh, pretty old man there. He's still around in 1958. Strella has got photographs of him in 1958. Um, so look, he would have lived to nearly 100 I reckon. But just look at these men, look at them. They just, look at them. Proud, proud, fit, healthy, spiritually uplifted. We use these photographs as examples to show our young men. Look, you mob, look, you know. Dick Gericha, he's the father of John Kavanagh, the East Narendra man we're working with. Wow. Dick Eagle, Hiricha, Eagle, Dick Eagle Hawk. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, bro, sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Getting carried away. Siri um, Ross Ilbrinya, Siri Ross Stinky Beetle. Ilbrinya is a stinky beetle. Um, really important um, ancestor, really important totem in, in Bandra area. Stinky beetles fought with the Yiprinyas, the caterpillars. This is Siri Ross, um, one of the uh, chief ceremonial men of Mbando area, Alice Springs area. Um, yeah, and when you, when you look at these men's contributions to the collection, they're just really significant contributions. Siri Ross is the um, main performer in over... 60 ceremonies in that collection, you know? Um, so we're trying to do the research and present this to the people and flip the story on its head, I guess, because everything you read about the collection is about Strello, but yeah, these, these men were the source. Um, look, I reckon that'll do. the hardest part of actually working at these events that you actually have to keep them moving along <laughs> because that was a fantastic presentation, Sean, as always. Um, you know, and it just shows. <clears throat> Last year, the, or was it this year, the, the, re, the licensing reproduction rights of the Albert Namajira works were repatriated, essentially, to the Namajira family. It's not objects, it's not images, it can be legal things like licensing rights as well these days. As we move into the 21st century, the ways that... Um, repatriation is actually playing out is just incredible. Not to mention just to see those photos of you working at the intersection with the younger communities in Alice Springs. And, you know, it's just really um, inspiring for all of us as curators, I think, to see the amazing work that you do. 
So before we get into our question and answer session, um, I'll just introduce our final speaker for tonight, which is Mr. Marcus Hughes. Marcus has worked within the arts and cultural sector throughout Australia and the UK as a producer, a presenter, and an advocate across all artistic disciplines, contexts, and environments. In 2014, he addressed the Sixth World Summit on Arts and Culture and was adjunct associate professor at Victoria University's Mundani Bullock Indigenous Academic Unit. Marcus is a descendant of the Moninjali peoples of the Ugamba Nation. Uh, Marcus, if you would just like to maybe give us a sum up of all, all our right. presentations. Just a little. Am I on? Uh, yeah, I can am hear it. making noise. Great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a lot of you. Thank you. Um, I met this young one a couple of years ago in Canberra. Um, there was a conference um, around an exhibition that was being presented at the Australian Museum um, called Encounters. I've not worked in museums for a very long time. Um, when I went to this conference, I'd been in my role at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences for maybe six months. That whole exhibition was an incredible amount of cultural material that had been collected and housed by the British Museum and had been brought back to Australia for a visit. It presented a number of questions for me as a black fellow coming into this new glam environment about why were these objects so important that they could not be given back? Why were objects like the Tujawarang Baks so important to our community, to the Tujawarang? Why were those photographic images that documented the objects that were made by Auntie Henrietta's ancestors so important to her and so important to the people that brought them here and took them back. And it, it, it became more clear that the barks were important. The the objects were important because they documented that culture, those cultures that had been interrupted. So when it, it comes to hearing young ones like Sean, speak so passionately about the way that his community connect with their cultural material. Um, it is humbling. I was at a, a forum 
um, a couple of weeks ago. And the young one that was in the room, spoke in language, gave his introduction and then translated. This was to a cluster of, of urban Aboriginal people. A group of aunties from the stolen generation who do not have language. It was taken from them. They were forbidden to speak. So for them, hearing that young one speak language brought shame. And our young one didn't realise that. So we had to have that conversation. And because of all of these funny little things that we have to deal with, um, we have to have many private conversations, as Sissy said. At the Encounters exhibition, one of the delegates that were there explained that we are constantly having to develop or recreate or reinvent or make ceremony for things that were not part of our culture. As you said, repatriation is not of our culture. We didn't have to do that. It's the impact of those last 248 years that mean we have to reinvent, revision, and adjust within our own cultural groups to the ways that we have to work. I'm lucky in that I work for a museum that is not anthropological. We're about science, we're about art. We have things that we are not so proud of, but we're working through that. I have a group of people that I work with there who are willing for the collection to be um, dispersed as appropriate. We have developed new deeds where title is no longer changed, where the traditional owner or custodian of that work remains the custodian of that work. And we're kind of proud of that. But I think in the little bit of time that I've been in that institution and hearing people like Annie Henrietta say, you brought my great-grandfather back, but now you're taking him away. I think what I've learned, and as we at MAS work towards a post-reconciliation Australia, 
think what I've learned more than anything is that repatriation is not about purely cultural material. Um, it's not about giving back objects. It's about giving back the power. I think that's all you need from me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.